From the New Media Project at the NYU School of Medicine, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, the power of the atom. Once it's established that the child has myopia and that it is of a progressive nature, and certainly if the child has a strong family history of high myopia and the parents, I would say, you know, once they develop it at the age of five or six, we could probably start with uh, some treatment. First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Dr. Chua declares no real or apparent conflicts of interest. Did you know that you can get every episode of As Seen From Here as soon as it comes out and without ever having to visit a website? It's called subscribing and it's free. Each week, subscribers get As Seen From Here automatically loaded onto their iPods, MP3 players, and computers by using a program called a podcatcher. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the How Do I Listen button. Subscribing only takes a minute. Free podcatchers are available for Windows, Macintosh, and Linux computers. I put links to download an excellent podcatcher on the How Do I Listen page of asseenfromhere.com. Then, within hours of my podcasting an episode, you'll have it too. Myopia is the scourge of the earth. Well, not exactly, but myopia is enough of a hassle that it has motivated millions to undergo keratorefractive surgery, and many times more, to wear spectacles and contact lenses. Kidding aside, myopia is associated with serious ophthalmic pathology, like retinal detachment and myopic degeneration. Paraphrasing an aphorism, perhaps an ounce of atropine is worth a pound of cure. That's the thinking behind the Atropine for the Treatment of Myopia, or ADAM, study. Weihan Chua of the Singapore National Eye Center has just published results of this study. Why is myopia so common? You mentioned a figure of 80% in some East Asian countries. Yes, that's right. Well, I mean, unfortunately, we, we are still not sure why myopia is so prevalent in East Asia. Um, but we believe certainly that it's due to two factors. One is the genetics, and two is the environment. Well, from studies that we have done both here in Singapore and in the surrounding countries, we found that a race, for example, like the Chinese, are more prone to developing myopia compared to another race, say, like the Malays. So that would explain for a genetic basis for this disease. And certainly we know that in um, high myopia, there's a strong family history of uh, people with high myopia. The other risk factor, which is environment, again, we had done studies here based on surveys showing that when we compare, say, a Chinese who is living here in Singapore compared to a Chinese who is living in China, the prevalence rates of myopia here amongst the Chinese in Singapore is higher than those of the Chinese living in China. So that would suggest that while the gene pool has not really changed, there must be something in the environment that contributes to this difference in the prevalence rate of myopia. And based on, again, these um, epidemiological studies, it's you know, noted that near-work activity, such as reading and writing, may be a, a risk factor in uh, myopia development. In addition to the fact that myopia is more common uh, in certain East Asian countries, do we see any change in the rates of myopia over time? Is, is myopia getting more prevalent now? 
certainly um, uh, the Taiwanese have done a study where they have done um, surveys, a cross-sectional surveys of all the children of, in a particular year. And we noted that in 1985, you know, they, they looked at the, a group of children and again in 1995 of a separate group of children and they found that the prevalence rates of myopia have increased. Anecdotally here in Singapore, we've also noticed an increase in the number of uh, kids who are wearing myopic uh, spectacles. So that leads us to believe that there is indeed a overall increase in myopia rates over the last few generations. Myopia is a concern not only for the effect that it has on vision, but also because it's associated with things like glaucoma and retinal detachment and myopic degeneration. That's right. And unlike in the U.S. where the myopia rates are much lower and often quoted to be about 25% of the adult population, here in Singapore, uh, we have a much higher rate of myopia even amongst the older adults. We are seeing about 50%. And therefore, we are seeing a much higher number of complications associated with myopia. And as you've said, it's uh, myopic macular degeneration, glaucoma, retinal tears, retinal detachment. And unfortunately, some of these are irreversible causes of blindness. And we expect that because of the high rates of myopia, in the next decade or so, it may slowly become the leading cause of blindness in this part of the world. In addition to the higher incidence of myopia, are we also seeing more severe myopia? Yes, yes. Um, in the survey where we looked at young adults, uh, we found that not only were the rates of myopia quoted to be about 80%, there was a 10% um, prevalence of high myopia, which we define as six diopters of more. What is the etiology of myopia? Well, um, as I alluded to earlier, we, we're not exactly sure what is the etiology. We know that myopia is actually a, a state of refraction and is consequent to, in most cases, an elongated axial length. So I think that is one thing which most people still are not sort of familiar with, uh, is that myopia results from an axial elongation, uh, or excessive axial elongation. And what we really should be looking at is the axial elongation itself and hoping to be able to curb this excessive axial elongation because myopia itself is just a byproduct of this axial elongation. What clinical interventions have been tried to stem the development of myopia in, in children? There, there has been many different interventions that have been attempted, both in clinical trials and some with just you know, recommendations. The, the recent interest in myopia um, sort of gathered pace in the last uh, five to ten years where we began to uh, do intervention, proper clinical trials. And to date, um, you know, researchers have looked at not just uh, atropine, but also looked at um, non-pharmacological interventions such as rigid gas permeable contact lenses and progressive addition lenses. Um, unfortunately, the randomized control trials of these interventions have shown that um, they are no better than just using single vision lenses in terms of curbing myopia progression, which is quite disappointing in a sense. And in terms of pharmacological intervention, atropine was the drug that has been used you know, um, more than a century ago in attempt to slow myopia. And at that time, it was thought that myopia was due to excessive accommodation. And therefore, if you gave atropine, which is an anti-muscarinic agent, and you could paralyze or inhibit accommodation, you would reduce myopia progression. 
Well, subsequent studies have since shown in animal models that myopia is not due to excessive accommodation. So the mechanism of atropine then remains um, unknown or unclear. Other drugs that have been tested include um, tropicamide and cyclopentylate, which are, you know, cousins of atropine, but these studies have not shown uh, that these drugs are to be of any benefit. So atropine remains the only drug. Recently, I was also involved in another study, which is to look at a more specific muscarinic antagonist, the parenzepine, and this was part of a FDA phase two trial looking at the safety of parenzepine. And interestingly, the study we showed that parenzepine was um, safe, but it had the efficacy which is about 50% that of atropine uh, found in my study. Can I have you describe the ATOM study? Um, in essence, the ATOM study is a um, prospective randomized clinical control trial with uh, a single center study that was um, started its recruitment in April 1999, and we enrolled a total of 400 children into our study aged between 6 to 12 years with myopia of minus one to minus six diopters. And the children who were enrolled were essentially randomized into two groups, one group which is the atropine treatment group and the other group which is the placebo control group. And the intervention involved is basically instilling the eye drop that had been assigned to these children um, once nightly over a two-year period. And uh, follow-ups were carried out every four months um, up to two years to look at the progression of myopia. Yeah. In addition, we also looked at the safety aspects of um, the treatment that was um, administered. In the children studied, uh, each child received a drop in only one eye, and one of the groups was a placebo group, and the other group was a 1% atropine group? Yes. Well, what we have, because initially we had designed the study where the child would receive atropine in both eyes and the other child would receive placebo in both eyes. Um, but we weren't sure at that time of the efficacy of atropine. So what we had set out in this study design was to demonstrate, hopefully conclusively, that atropine or you know, pharmacological agent can actually retard myopia progression. And so we decided then on just treating one eye of a child in the atropine group, which means that the fellow eye acted as a natural control. In addition, with the placebo control group, one eye of that child was also given treatment and the other fellow eye acted as a control. So in effect, we have, when we talk about a pair of children, we have one eye on atropine and three eyes as controls. The study had the observers masked, but how do you mask an observer when one of the medica when, when the medication being tested is a cycloplegic dilating medication? Yes. Well, what happens is that these observers, um, when they measure the outcome measures um, during the, the visits, um, they only get to see the child after the child has received uh, dilating drops in both eyes when they first arrive at the clinic. So the child, the, you know, each child is given cyclopentylate to achieve maximum uh, pupillary dilatation before they're seen by the mask investigators. What were the main outcome measures of this study? Well, there were uh, two main outcome measures, one in terms of efficacy and one in terms of safety. For the efficacy outcome measures, the primary one was that of uh, myopia as defined by um, autorefraction, cycloplegic autorefraction. And equally as important is the second um, efficacy outcome measure, which is that of axial length measured by 
um, ultrasonography. In terms of the safety outcome measure, we um, looked at the occurrence of adverse events which the parents or the child would um, bring to our attention. And also, we instituted a questionnaire at each visit asking for you know, basic uh, or simple side effects such as you know, redness, glare, um, itch, and so on and so forth. Since the ages of the kids in the study ranged from 6 to 12, were you concerned about inducing amblyopia, particularly in the, in the young children, keeping, keep, keeping in mind that only one eye was treated? Yeah, that was certainly in our minds when we first designed the study, and therefore, as such, one of the safety parameters was looking at their visual acuity at each visit. If there was a reduction in just by 0.1 um, logma uh, acuity, we would then stop the child from you know, continuing the study. But uh, fortunately, throughout the entire duration of the study, every child maintained their best spectacle-corrected visual acuity compared to the initial visit. To reiterate what you said earlier, there, there were, in fact, three control groups. There were the, um, the placebo-treated eyes, the placebo-untreated eyes, and the untreated eyes of the children using atropine. atropine. That's right. What were the results of your study? Well, we found that um, at one year, uh, because this is a two-year study, at one year, the myopia progression in the atropine-treated eyes was about um, 0.76 diopters. And in the placebo-controlled eye, the progression of myopia in one year was 0.76 diopters, whereas the atropine-treated eyes, in fact, there was a reduction of myopia by 0.03 diopters. Um, to me, that is not significant. So in essence, there was no increase in myopia progression in the atropine-treated eyes. So this represented about a you know, 77% reduction in myopia in the first year. At the same time, the axial length changes between the placebo-treated eyes and the atropine-treated eyes paralleled that of the changes in refraction, where the placebo-treated eyes, the axial length increased by 0.2 millimeters, but in atropine-treated eyes, there was a slight reduction in the axial length by about 0.14 millimeters. What happens after two years is that the mean progression of myopia in the placebo-treated eye was minus 1.2 diopters over a two-year period, and in the atropine-treated eyes was only 0.28 diopters, or just a quarter of a diopter after two years. And again, the axial elongation showed similar trends, where in the, in the placebo-controlled eyes, it was 0.38 millimeters increase, whereas in the atropine-treated eye, it was um, essentially unchanged compared to baseline. What adverse events were observed? Well, um, by far the most common um, adverse event was that of allergic or hypersensitivity reactions or discomfort from the daily installation of the eye drops. Um, fortunately, these adverse events were uh, resolved spontaneously upon cessation of the use of the eye drops. Other adverse events would include glare, um, amounting to only about 1.5% of the population or the uh, treatment population. Blurred near vision, where 1% complained that they were not able to read despite uh, having one eye not on treatment. And um, a miscellaneous group of you know, other uh, adverse events. In the study population, what do you think the atropine is doing? Well, it is, in fact, um, slowing down the axial elongation. Um, 
researchers are actively trying to look at which side of the eye atropine acts on. We know that it's not um, the effect on accommodation, which is uh, the mechanism of action. So we postulate that it is probably either on the retina or the choroid or the sclera, which uh, atropine is acting on. Um, we know that ultimately it's the scleral elongation or the, the reduction in scleral elongation, which is um, the eventual biological so-called outcome. But where in this chain of events does atropine work? We are still yet to uh, elucidate uh, exactly. In the study group, how did you deal with photophobia, glare, and cycloplegia? Well, in anticipation of potential um, photophobia, we had elected uh, right from the onset to prescribe every child, regardless of which group they were randomized to, to wear transition or what we call photochromatic lenses. So these lenses would uh, typically look like a normal pair of glasses in a classroom, but once they're out in um, the sun, it would darken considerably. So this uh, greatly minimized the discomfort from photophobia. As for the effects of cycloplegia, well, because only one eye is on treatment as such, the other uh, untreated eye in the atropine uh, group, they were still able to read, so there was no problems with having to um, be able to read and write in these children. But if you were to institute this as a therapy at some point, then presumably you would be treating both eyes. Uh, as, yeah, cycloplegia would, would be uh, would that become uh, a more, more important problem. Yeah. yeah. Well, we've, we've, since the, the first study, the first ATOM study, we've gone on to an ATOM2 study, which is currently in progress, where we're looking at lower concentrations of atropine and this time bilateral treatment. And what happens is that if a child is having problems with uh, near work because of the cycloplegic effects, we would then prescribe them transition progressive addition lenses, glasses to read. From the results that, that you published from the ADAM study, I guess from the ADAM-1 study, yes. there was quite a, a range of ages with these kids from, from 6 until 12. That's right. Did you find that the age of the children mattered with uh, respect to the response that they had to the atropine? Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, uh, it was not reviewed in the paper because this would constitute a subgroup analysis. Uh, but I did look at the subgroup analysis and found that generally it was the younger children who responded more to uh, atropine compared to the uh, older age groups. So we know that the 6 to 7 had a better response compared to the 8 to 9, which in turn had a better response compared to the uh, 10 to 12. And it could be because the progression in the younger children tended to be higher than that of the older children. So what do you think that I, I realize that it's it's a little bit early to ask a question like this, but what do you think that the optimal time would be to intervene with a child? Well, I would say that um, once it's established that the child has myopia and that it is of a progressive nature, um, and certainly if the child has a strong family history of high myopia in the parents, I would say, you know, once they develop it at the age of five or six, we could probably start with uh, some treatment. And treatment would probably have to be continued um, for as long as we think the child is still progressing. Unfortunately, that would be a guesswork because we never know when the child would stabilize naturally. So what we would have to do is probably treat the child for two to three years, and then we would need to stop treatment 
reevaluate and see if there's a continued progression, and then maybe restart atropine treatment. So potentially a child could be on treatment for you know five, six years, which typically is the uh, duration of myopia progression in our population here in Singapore. The results of your study are really quite striking. What do you do in your own practice now outside of the Adams study? What I generally do is first establish whether the child's myopia is progressing. Because if there's no progression, then there is no need for any form of treatment uh, because atropine doesn't really reverse myopia. It just stops it from increasing. Um, I also look at um, parental history to see whether there's a family history of myopia or whether there is a strong family history history of sibling myopia. And then I would discuss about the um, results of my study to these parents and also um, inform them of the so-called uh, long-term consequences of atropine that we do not yet know about. Um, and then if the parent is agreeable to this, we will then institute the treatment. I would monitor these children quite regularly at about four monthly intervals and I would perform refraction as well as look at the axial length each time they come for a visit. Having said that, yeah, I, I've not gone on to, um, you know, the, the group of us investigators involved in this study have not gone on to administer atropine to every child that we see because we believe that 1% atropine is by no means the ideal um, drug for uh, slowing myopia progression. As such, the second study, ATOM2 study, will be looking at lower concentrations to see whether we can get similar efficacy with 1% atropine, but at the same time, um, less adverse events or less side effects, and that would make it more ideal. Weihan, are you myopic? No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm one of the rare ones. Do you have children? Do you see kind of where I'm going with this question? Yes, I do, but uh, he's too young. <laughs> Well, certainly, um, in, you know, amongst my fellow colleagues, some of them have uh, put their children on atropine. Um, as for myself, I mean, I, again, as I said, it would be a, I would need to assess the risk-benefit um, profile of the child um, because I myself am not myopic and neither is my wife. So if my you know, child develops myopia, it probably would not be a high myopia and I would elect to watch maybe in the early stages. But if suddenly there is a trend towards um, rapid myopia progression, that is, you know, a doctor a year, yes, I would consider um, instituting my, my children on some form of treatment. Let me ask if there's something that you'd like to uh, add or if you want to touch on um, some of the uh, follow-on study. Yeah, um, as I said, the, the other drug that has been tested is the preventipin. Um, drug. Unfortunately, we uh, this is a drug that has been brought to our attention by Valley Forge, a startup company based in California. And for some reasons, they were not able to carry it through to a phase three study. So that's one potential area or one potential drug that unfortunately has, you know, not been able to uh, be brought forward in terms of commercial stage. Um, having said that, we are hoping that with the ATOM2 study, where we look at lower concentrations of atropine, if we are able to find, say for example, that a 0.1% of atropine is able to achieve you know, um, similar, if not you know, slightly less efficacy than 1% atropine, but without the cyclopegic effect, without the myodretic effects of 1% atropine, then this would really be a useful 
armamentarium, useful part of the armamentarium we have against uh, myopia progression. But ultimately, uh, we would have to rely on a basic scientist to discover what is the mechanism of myopia in the first place. Why is there an excessive axial elongation in these people resulting in myopia? And only through that, we can perhaps come up with a designer drug that can combat or prevent excessive axial elongation and hence cut off myopia progression. Thank you very much. No, not at all. Thank you very much. Weihan Chua is Associate Consultant at the Singapore National Eye Center in Singapore. His paper, Atropine for the Treatment of Childhood Myopia, is in press in ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Chua or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the new media project of the NYU School of Medicine and is edited by Joe Fry. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.